This is the Young Farmers Podcast. I'm Lindsay Lusher-Shoot. The Bracero Program started out as an agreement between the United States and Mexico in 1942. It brought Mexican workers to the U.S. to replace men who were leaving their farms to fight in World War II. But the program didn't end with the war. In fact, it actually grew after the war by hundreds of thousands of workers, and it continued until 1964. The Bracero Program laid the foundation for our current guest worker programs. The Bracero Program was controversial. 4.6 million Mexican nationals took farm labor jobs. They were paid 30 cents an hour or about $4.63 today. And while the Bracero Program had safeguards to protect both Mexican and domestic workers, many of the rules were ignored by both farmers and the governments that put them in place. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Matthew Garcia. He's a professor at Dartmouth College. Matt helped to create the Bracero History Archive with the Smithsonian. His team gathered images of the program and stories from the people who lived it. We talk about what he's learned and the context it provides for our ongoing debate on immigration and farm labor. Hi, I'm Emily McLeod-Doyle, farmer at Sprout Nola and organizer with the Greater New Orleans Growers Alliance. I've been a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition since 2013 because I believe that young people can be torchbearers for current and future generations in creating community-based food systems. For $35 a year, you can join too. In addition to being part of a bright and just future for agriculture in the United States, you'll also get discounts like 10% off high mowing organic seeds and 15% off Rosie's workwear for women. To join, go to youngfarmers.org. So Matt, you are you're currently at Dartmouth, correct? Yes, I am a professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies, and I'm also in the history department, currently chairing uh, the Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies program. And uh, I think that captures all my professional titles. Uh, I do want to claim and can uh, accurately claim that I am a farmer as well. I own um, Taste for Good Farm in technically East Thetford, Vermont. Um, I've been the owner of Taste for Good Farm for uh, a year now. Well, congratulations. Well, welcome to farming. <laughs> you you two are a beginning yeah, young not farmer. So, not so, so young, not as young as you, but <laughs> younger than the average farmer. Cool. Well, um, today we're going to yeah. talk about the Bracero yeah. program. And it was something that I hadn't really learned a whole lot about until a few years ago um, when a friend mentioned that he his family had come to the United States because his father had been part of the Bracero program. To begin with, can you give sort of a basic description of the Bracero program? How did, how did it get started and, and what did it do? So the Bracero program is a guest worker program um, that was uh, started as a bilateral agreement between the United States and Mexico during World War II. And its objective was to replace the labor that was leaving the fields for the front lines of uh, World War II um, with guest workers from Mexico who were adept at agricultural work, although is always classified as unskilled labor, and that's a problem of, of farm work in general. But in any case, uh, 
these guest workers were hired to come here on temporary contracts. Um, and it started as a kind of nation to nation um, agreement. And then as it moved through the decades, the United States acted somewhat unilaterally. Um, private farmers of substantial size and means started to extract that labor and do whatever it wanted with it. And it became uh, more exploitative as the years went on. Um, of course, the rationale for the the program in the first place uh, quickly evaporated with the end of World War II, but that didn't stop big ag from drawing on this seemingly endless pool of workers, um, and it continued until 1964 when a variety of forces brought it down. Anyone from uh, Ernesto Galarso was an early advocate for um, farm worker unions to Cesar Chavez, who essentially started the modern farm worker movement um, with the explicit goal of ending the Bracero program so that they could begin to unionize citizen workers. Just to be clear, the the um, Mexican um, individuals, Mexican workers, were brought to the United States, and the intention was that they would return to Mexico. They were not uh, meant to be permanent residents or eventual citizens of, of the country. Yes, they were what one historian may not call impossible subjects. Um, they didn't have citizenship but they were present uh, within our country. And so therefore, we're subject to the laws and restrictions that any citizen is, but yet not granted citizenship status to defend themselves or to advocate for themselves uh, through collective bargaining. And in fact, their temporary status, their ability to be shipped out at any moment, they were often shipped out for labor rebellions, um, made it very difficult to organize farm worker unions uh, and to establish a kind of baseline organization that could lead to collective bargaining uh, rights. So some of those individuals have since become citizens mm -hmm. and many of them have stayed in the United States and you have documented many of their stories through um, the Bracero History Archive. So I guess, first of all, can you can you tell me about these individuals coming to the country and how many of them stayed? How did they get citizenship? Um, what what was sort of the story of those individuals crossing the border and to find work? Um, so they're famously uh, referred to as skips, and that's a reference to the common um, nomenclature of the time. They skipped their contracts. And so they basically would you know, leave the farm sometimes in the dead of night and then just blend into the differentiated mass of, of farm workers that were a mix of citizen workers, braceros, and undocumented, increasingly undocumented workers as we move into the 1960s. So they essentially moved from being documented as temporary guest workers to undocumented. Some of them, of course, were able to get jobs in uh, urban and industrial sectors, and they became part of the larger sort of now 11 million undocumented working and living in the United States. We, at the time when we started this project, we had no idea that we would uncover this huge population, this huge community uh, of uh, former Braceros and their families. 
I had published a book about, partly about Braceras. It was one chapter about Braceras and the citrus growing regions of Southern California, primarily because local Mexican Americans objected to the Braceras presence um, on two uh, counts. One was that they were allegedly taking their jobs, and the second was a very heterosexual, <laughs> uh, homosocial uh, consequences of being there. They were taking. Uh, the women of the barrio. And so there was struggles over that and actually even murders. Um, so so bad that uh, the Mexican government in a period where there was much more bilateral maintenance of the program withdrew Braceros temporarily from Southern California because of the antipathy expressed towards them. So I'm working at Brown University um, in roughly 2003-2004, and my new colleague, Steve Lubar, had been working at the Smithsonian um, National Museum of American History for most of his career, was hired to start the public humanities program at Brown, and his colleague, who runs um, the section of the National Museum of American History, Work and Life, Peter Liebold, had discovered all of these uh, photos by a man named Leonard Nadell, who had worked alongside Ernesto Galarza in the mid-50s, roughly, I think it was 1956, documenting uh, his attempts not only to connect with um, farm workers, but to actually document um, the braceros that were coming across. And so he had all these wonderful black and white uh, photos um, uh, high quality, but didn't have a story to go with them. Mm. And so he, he appealed to Steve and said, you know, do you have anybody at Brown that actually writes about Latino history? And because I had, uh, Steve put us in touch. So Peter shows up uh, in Providence. Um, I call a, a student of mine who's niece of Braceros that were now living in Chicago. Her name is Mireya Losa. And that was the first meeting where we sat with Peter and he showed us the photos. Um, now some of them very famous. There's one where uh, Braceros are essentially naked or nearly completely naked crossing the border. A man who's masked uh, with a kind of uh, spray gun pointed at the Braceros face, uh, spraying DDT directly into his face. These were at border crossings um, where individuals were coming into the country specifically for this. this yeah. Program. So, you know, specifically it's in the moment it's delousing uh, Mexicans, but the p- assumption of the non-hygienic, dirty, <laughs> ill-kept Mexican precedes that moment. Uh, second of all, they're expendable. The man that's actually shooting them in the face um, knows the dangers of DDT. He's got a mask on, right? <laughs> and yet they're dire- shooting it directly into the, the man's face. It's really important to note at this point, too, that the concept of the bracero, the word bracero, comes from the word brazos or arms. Mm-hmm. And so there's a literal disembodiment of the worker. Bring us your arms to do the labor, but we don't care about the rest of your body. And so... You know, that that image says a lot. And um, in terms of Peter, he understood, like, that's a powerful image and there's lots more. But he didn't know what to do with it. He wanted to ask historians. And so he he turned to us after showing the photos and said, well, you know, if you were to build an exhibit around this, what would you do? Mm. 
And we said, well, if you look at the dates for the Bracero program, these men are in their 70s, 80s, and some may even be in their 90s. Um, if you don't go out there and interview these folks, they're going to die and you're going to miss a re an opportunity to build an archive of their voices. And at that point, too, we, we said we would interview the men, we'd interview um, the children and even grandchildren, and definitely the wives and girlfriends that uh, had been a part of this program on both sides of the border. Like what's, what's a story that, that stuck with you from, from Abracero? The one that we immediately encountered in Coachella, Southern California, um, by the way, we showed up and we didn't know what we would find. Uh, we put out advertisements on Spanish-speaking radio, um, and we ended up coming to um, a community organization um, auditorium that had about 50 braceros waiting for us at 8 a.m. in the morning. They were, they'd been waiting since 5. They're farm workers. Wow, yeah. <laughs> um, but what was interesting, um, one of the things that we, we uncovered in since the diversity of the Braceros, we met indigenous Braceros who are Mistec Indians coming from Oaxaca, had actually a kind of uh, nominal grasp of, of Spanish and English and more proficient in their native language. And they experienced discrimination um, from their fellow Braceros who were uh, they're mestizos, the mestizo meaning predominantly what's presumed to be the Spanish Indian mixture that makes makes up the Mexicanidad. But um, quickly it was it was revealed to us that that indigenous Mexican people were sort of absent in the history and the memory of the Bracero program. And here they were telling their stories of discrimination before they even crossed the border. And then once they crossed the border, um, they talked about the special skills that they had. Um, this one guy who was a what they call a palmetto, he walked on the treetops of palms, picking dates. Um, very, very dangerous work. His name was Isaias. Oh, I'm going to mess up his last name. I'm sorry. But but he talked very wistfully about his adventures. Like a lot of the Braceros, despite the popular perception of it being exploitative, um, the new knowledge of experiencing discrimination as an Indian in this mostly mestizo uh, program. They also talked about the adventure of it. They they loved being on, in the United States. They loved um, being honored and, and appreciated for the work that they could give. And so there was a mix of um, both sorrow, but also pride in, in the things that they achieved. I guess I'm just wondering, like, what was his path to the U.S. border did the Mexican government advertise in Oaxaca? How did the, I mean, this was an agreement between the U.S. and Mexico to provide this additional labor. Like, how, what was the Mexican government's participation in this? Because it must have been very involved. Well, so Mexico stood to benefit from this in a couple of ways. Um, and they encouraged people to, to come to these uh, receiving stations um, in urban Mexico, and then they were uh, put on trains up to the northwest uh, Mexico, and then bussed up to the the border. 
but they they encouraged uh, an abundance of workers to come to these places. Mexico's interest in this was partly political because they worried that coming out of the revolution as uh, private land is consolidated, they're they're afraid of uh, another uh, rebellion another revolution. So this was a way of getting people um, off the land, out of those communities, and into a system that would sort of channel that revolutionary spirit out, literally out of the country. The other ways in which they spun it was that they would go to the presumptively uh, modernized uh, America and learn the latest uh, technologies in modern agriculture. And then because they were temporary, they'd come back to Mexico and bring all of that know-how back to Mexico and help Mexico modernize its agriculture. Um, Little did they respect or know that uh, they were just going to be exploited as uh, field laborers. Um, They were going to be given implements like the shorthanded hoe that forced them to bend over and and really destroy their backs. It later was outlawed um, as part of the United Farm Workers' uh, push for justice in the fields. And to ensure that the, the laborers would come back to Mexico, some of their wage was withheld in the United States. Is that correct? And then the Mexican government was supposed to pay the workers? Yes. So it was 10% of their wages was um, collected, usually by U.S., banks. Uh, Wells Fargo was one. And then um, it was sent to the Mexican state for disbursement when they returned from the United States to Mexico. And this became a huge scandal and the origins of the modern Bracero justice movement. Um, Initially, there was this uh, accusation that Wells Fargo had absconded their, their money and it wasn't paid back to them. Um, But in fact, uh, it was discovered that it's actually the Mexican state that uh, absconded the money and never gave it to them. So there were mass rebellions uh, and demonstrations. Um, Years later, after the Bracero program uh, had finished, uh, we actually started collecting amidst that social justice movement. I remember going to San Bernardino and uh, one of the primary leaders of an organization called Braseo Proa, his name is um, uh, Ventura Gutierrez, who helped facilitate some of our interviews. Uh, He was leading a transnational movement to get the 10% back. And uh, ultimately, it forced the state to acknowledge, me and the Mexican state, to acknowledge that they did abscond the money. Um, And they offered just to pay off the Braceros $3,000, those that were living, who could prove that they had served in the program. I imagine that's inadequate. (laughs) Oh, totally, totally. I mean, can you imagine the interest? That didn't even cover the, like, one one or two years interest, right? So, and I don't remember the exact date. It was sometime after we started collecting. And some accepted because of the their age, they were very old, they're going to die, they might as well take something. Uh, Some took it because they were dubious of the government ever improving on their offer. But many actually resisted. And they actually used images of their exploitation, uh, being stripped, being sprayed with DDT in the face. They used those images that actually Peter introduced to us in Nadal's photos as 
a kind of guilt trip <laughs> against mm, the Mexican as an government. organizing tool. Yeah, it's it's, it's an amazing story of um, a modern social justice movement of really elderly um, men and their and their families to extract um, an agreement. Must have felt um, pretty good for you all who had worked on the archive project, having helped to likely bring more recognition to those images of mistreatment and the like. You know, the other thing that I I found so fascinating, so initially, right, Roosevelt um, talked about, you know, the the Mexican labor um, coming to the United States as kind of part of the war effort, right? Like an, an uh-huh. act of support right. for the United States um, and really speaking in such positive terms about um, this labor force, really what he was talking about was ultimately a very, you know, in 1942, a really small part of the program overall um, because it was tens of thousands of workers, but then became hundreds of thousands of workers after the war. Um, And then there was this uh, Operation Wetback, I suppose, which was this, you know, also agreement between the U.S. and Mexico to bring these workers back to Mexico in the 50s, which was just shocking that it was named that, for one thing, as an official (laughs) government program. Initially, this immigration was sort of celebrated, at least, you know, in in words, not certainly by actions and certainly how these these workers were received and treated on the ground. But then, you know, this also became the beginning of um, a really permanent border presence at the U.S.-Mexico border. And it seems like this this whole sort of trajectory of the Bracero program really came to define so much of our current border um, situation and guest worker programs and the immigration system overall. I, I wonder if you could just speak to that because it's such a such a strange sort of push and pull, right? Of of the U.S. understanding the vital importance of the me- Mexican labor, and but then at the same time, deporting all these people in the 50s with the help of Mexico, and then also the U.S. establishing a permanent program for guest workers. Can you sort of speak to what you make of all of this and also, you know, this deportation program in, in the 50s? Um, why was why was that initiated? So the popular perception of the Bracero program is that they were the sort of international component of what's frequently referred to as um, the greatest generation, right? They saved the crops. The reality is that 7% of the contracts filled happened during World War II. So this premise that they were needed to save the crops, that they were needed because the workforce was going to the front lines, was frankly just BS. You don't think that that it was never the intention for it really serve that purpose? No, I think it was an excuse to um, get access to labor that was exploitable, that was was knowledgeable, actually, you know, as an agricultural state in Mexico. There were people that had been traveling to the United States um, as early as uh, right after the U.S.-Mexican War. And this was just a way to kind of create a regulatory system by which they can bring Mexican workers in that they can control, they can keep the cost of labor down, 
and then to expel those that prove themselves to be radical and uh, a problem in the, in the fields. Uh, it's the main reason why farm work is unorganized. It's the most exploited workforce in the United States throughout the 20th century. The other thing that they did, which is, I think, noteworthy, is that they increasingly saw undocumented immigrants coming in because, you know, because Mexico was wooing so many Mexicans into indiscriminately into the program. And there was never enough contracts to meet the demand that farm owners just began to see the benefits of circumventing the program and the, the government and just employing undocumented workers for less money than the Braceros. And so that's why undocumented uh, workers um, increasingly supplanted braceros. Um, the federal government tried to regulate that in these years, and that's why Operation Wetback gets started. Um, they're trying to manage that flow. And so they're literally um, taking undocumented workers that they capture, and then they'll put them through the revolving door. They'll go into Mexico. They'll give them a contract and bring them back in as braceros. This process was known as drying out the wets. So wetbacks were limit were uh, shortened to just wets, and then they had this uh, unofficial official process of drying out the wets. But because of the demand for labor um, on the northern side of the border, the United States, because of the struggles in Mexico and the grinding poverty and the Mexican state trying to um, uh, create a kind of safety valve for that potentially revolutionary population, there was always more people needing the work and um, not enough contracts or a system that could keep up with that demand. And so ultimately, undocumented workers kind of overwhelmed the Bracero program. And I guess, you know, the, the root of this relationship between the U.S. and Mexico I've heard you talk about really this is sort of the economic disparity and imbalance. Um, I wondered if you could just speak to that a bit, like the the root cause of why workers from Mexico want to come to the United States. Oh, gosh, <laughs> it's, it goes so deep, right? Uh, first of all, the United States-Mexico imbalance benefits the United States. The standard... Uh, living wage in Mexico is far lower than the United States. So uh, Mexicans will continue to come even if they're being paid 30 cents on the dollar, right? Um, but if you go further back in time, I mean, part of this is a kind of semi-colonial relationship. Um, she's my Latin American historian friends would say, don't say semi-colonial, <laughs> colonial relationship between Mexico and the United States, whereby you had uh, companies like Phelps Dodge going in and extracting iron ore and gold ore from, from northern Mexico um, and shipping it across the border. Uh, if you look at, for example, oil extraction um, prior to Pemex and the nationalization of the oil industry in Mexico, it's standard oil that is taking that money, uh, excuse me, taking that oil and taking that money and siphoning it north, right? And then all of the uh, railroads that are built in Mexico, they're built in part with U.S. capital, and uh, it's going through El Paso to extract the wealth that's, that's coming out of Mexico into the United States. So 
almost all economic enterprises, uh, all profit that's being produced um, within Mexico in the 19th and early 20th century is directly flowing to the United States, undergirding this imbalance that has as it's not as severe as it once was, but it's still uh, prominent in today's uh, relationship between Mexico and the United States. What are the threads um, between this this population of braceros coming into the U.S., the organizing in California, and the establishment of the H two A program as as we know it today? Well, there, you know, it's funny that we say the bracero program ended in nineteen sixty four, but it never really ended, you know, because the H2A program, the guest worker programs that have been with us, they've mutated into uh, much more of a global phenomenon. It's not just Mexican workers. It's still like three-fourths La- uh, Latin American workers. But what's interesting is that the guest worker program, particularly the H2A, is always offered as a kind of solution uh, to our current uh, immigration crisis. Um but there's a kind of collective amnesia, and we were noticing this uh, when we were collecting in 2006. This was a period in which um, the last great attempt to build a comprehensive immigration reform act was in process. This was the Kennedy-McCain attempt. Um, and what was so interesting and kind of surreal about that, that process is that they were, they were proposing a new guest worker program, I think they called it an H5 or something like that, without citing or even acknowledging that there was exploitation in the original Bracero program. It was just presumed to be uh, the best path. It was presumed that if there's bilateral uh, management, if the federal government's involved, then no exploitation, uh, no abdication of the um, t- the terms of the agreement could happen. But of course it did happen from 1942 to 64. Mm-hmm. And so we were we continued to use those lessons and use the words of the Braceros who experienced these things, even though there was regulation of this um, guest worker program to say, hey, this is not the panacea. This is not the cure-all that you all believe it to be. In particular, people on the uh, in the more moderate side—I won't say left or right—but moderate side propose a guest worker program as a kind of middle road um, in terms of immigration reform. Well, the pro- the program has improved considerably. I mean, there are there are problems with the program certainly, and and not to say that their exploitation doesn't happen, but. I wonder, do you think that's true, that this the modern H-2A program is better than the Bracero program? And if not a guest worker program, what is the path forward? Yeah, I mean, the H-2A program has all of these provisions whereby, you know, they're going to get housing, they're going to be treated fairly, they're going to be paid a livable wage. But there were incidents of slavery in Florida. There was incidents of people having their visas uh, or their passports taken away and held hostage until they served a certain amount of time without pay in in fields across the United States. So it's like anything, um, whether it's safety and health regulations on the job, it's all in the amount of funding you give to regulation of those regulations, right? 
Um, so that would be the first and most important thing. What I think is important, though, is recognize that we live in a world where people are on the move. I mean, I'm living, I live in Vermont, this state. Uh, I'm sitting in New Hampshire as I speak, but I'm a Vermonter. Um, Vermont's primary uh, agriculture industry is dairy, and they are dependent on primarily immigrants from Guatemala and Mexico, right? And they're mostly undocumented. So they're coming anyways, right? You don't need a guest worker program to bring people here. Um, what you need is pathways to citizenship. You need security for those people. Um, if they're not intending to stay, you need to not harass them because they're an important part of the local, state, and regional economy. Um, and yet, that's all they're getting right now because of our proximity to Canada, because of our proximity to the border. ICE is active within 100 uh, miles of that right, border. Yep. And they're just getting harassed and picked up in front of a grocery store so that they live in a condition uh, that is, dare I say, close to slavery, enforced by the surveillance that exists. So from my point of view, it's not about uh, creating a program that sanctions their temporary uh, existence, but honoring their existence and their contributions already and making it possible for them to continue to make that contribution. You know, the undocumented workers um, that are currently in the country, you know, they have quite a harrowing journey to get to the United States, to get to those farms. And, you know, so much of the national conversation these days is specifically about the border and we have how do we manage the border and, and who comes across. Do you have thoughts on just immigration in general? Like, should there... I, I, would you advocate for just a more free flow of of workers um, across across the border? What is the thinking on that? Like, what would be a more just system outside of a guest worker program? Well, I mean, I think anytime you're crossing an international border, you have to regulate like who's coming in and why. And I don't I don't think that we should just open the borders and let people <laughs> cross in. I mean, I think we should document who's coming, who's going. But what I would say is is that the that that border um, those border crossings uh, and border management uh, be there to facilitate um, a peaceful, just uh, mobility that is actually serving, um, if done right, both sending country and receiving country. Right. So um, as long as we're ensuring that uh, they're not being forced into the desert to cross. Mm -hmm that they're able to come in a timely manner um, so that they're not missing the season in which they're working, right? All these things are happening as a consequence of the punitive uh, uh, border management and uh, the kind of racialized border management that's happening um, at our borders today, you know? Because today the United States is so dependent um, sectors of their economy, of our economy, is so dependent on immigrant labor. I mean, they're just integral to what to who we are as a society. So, you know, for me, this brings up another question. I mean, so much of the um, the organizing around farm labor in New York State, um, there is a, a there are a couple of bills that are out there right now uh, to allow. Um, farm workers to organize, um, to pay overtime, 
et cetera. And that conversation is really directed at farmers specifically. And I'm asking you this because now you're you're among us right? as, as a <laughs> farmer um, and farmers really they're they're in a very difficult position because there is a labor shortage. And I think some would argue there's a labor shortage because of the wages, right? Like farm workers aren't making enough to justify the work. So, but the farmer, right, if they raise the wage, I mean, we this is something we deal with on our farm right now, looking at our, our budget for this year. We pay a lot for labor, a lot. <laughs> um, and like we also are very aware of sort of what we believe to be sort of the upper limit of what a consumer will pay um, for our vegetables and our and our CSA shares. And that is highly influenced by a much more industrial scale of agriculture elsewhere in the country, like or internationally, right? Like what what those consumers are seeing at the grocery store. So I guess I in my mind there's some other sort of reckoning that needs to happen about the price of food. There is um, a very large consumer presence that's rallying around farm workers, which is wonderful um, on one hand that these um, individuals um, are, are coming forward in solidarity with farm workers. But at the same time, I feel like we have to help farmers make economic sense of this problem yeah. so yeah. they can, you know, have the ability to charge a bit more to reflect what they should be paid and what their farm workers should be paid. I, I guess I'm wondering where where do you see that conversation and and where is there there room for that conversation and discussion? Yeah, I mean the young socially conscious farmers being squeezed by these uh, cost of production and the expectation of low uh, costs or low prices for food. I mean, I think that we um, as a society have to take our collective wealth and redistribute it to a place that supports young farmers and the kind of production and consumption we want to see in our society. Perhaps there needs to be uh, uh, more support from that on a policy level and a budgetary level for um, farmers that are doing it ethically. So... You know, I it, it does sound like uh, wealth redistribution to some extent, but I am I actually think that we need to think about the ways in which we spend tax dollars to produce the kind of results that we want. Um, too often, too for too long, we've been spending tax dollars to support an extractive approach to uh, agriculture that benefits big corporations. So my last question to you, um, as a as a historian, what what is the most important thing that we should know um, about this about the Bracero program, and what is something that y you wish policymakers knew about this program, and the general you know general public knew about this program, and and this history of guest workers in the United States that that should be influencing our decisions today that for the majority of their existence, they've been exploitative, that they have not contributed to farm worker justice, and that they have enhanced the profit-making ability of the most fortunate and most privileged in the agricultural economy. 
Matt, I've learned so much. Thank you for your incredible work archiving this, the stories of this community that has played such an important role in the history of the country um, and has, has not received the attention and respect that it needs, um, and the justice, I should say, as well. Thank you, Lindsay. Okay, there's an interview with Felix Gallegos Reyes on April 15th in the city of Oxnard, California. Vivimos aquí unos cuantos meses porque se le acabó, él era, estaba contratado con los braceros. No era este, ¿cómo se llama? Era braceros. No, no eran braceros. La primera pregunta es, ¿cómo se enteró usted del programa Bracero? Ah, el programa Bracero llegó a Zacatecas porque ahí en el rancho eran muy norteños todos, nomás cumplían 19 años y luego luego se venían de, a la braceriada pues con, con, para ganar más dinero y eso. So is that it? That's it. <laughs> um, if you have a, so um, we're hosting a conference on April 26th and 27th. Oh, cool. That's called Cows, Land, and Labor. And uh, I can send you information about it, but it's going to involve uh, New York farmers, dairy farmers. Oh, great. Um, and also Vermonters and New Hampshire folks. So... That's yeah. terrific. Yeah, well, we will definitely include, maybe we'll include some of your audio from <laughs> right now um, about it. Um, yeah. But we'll be sure to include that in the show notes for today. I'm sure that would be of interest. Thank you, Matt. To see photos and learn more about the Cows, Land, and Labor Conference Matt is organizing at Dartmouth on April 26th, check out our show notes and go to cowsandlabor.com. This looks like a super interesting event combining so many important issues. If you haven't already, please take a minute to rate and review this show or just tell somebody something that you learned today. Recommendations, ratings, and review are how people find us. And honestly, they really help our team. This episode was edited by Hannah Beal and it was recorded at the studios of Radio Kingston. See you next week.